right, we're here with another episode of the BAT podcast. Today we have a super special guest and part of the BAT community. Mr. Jay Leno is with us. Jay, how are you? Good, very good. Thank you. We're so excited to have you. Howard, uh, we're pretty lucky to get Jay to join us and for him to have a car live on the site right now. I'm excited. Yeah, I got my, it's the first car I've sold in uh, 30 something years. You, I mean, I sometimes I'll donate cars, you know, to veterans group or something but it's the first time i actually sold something so it's uh it's interesting <laughs> it's a little nerve-wracking on bat you get everybody chiming in with their opinions but uh well, yeah okay I, I you know I, I bought my 90 my uh my p90 back in uh 15 uh with the ludicrous mode and it was the fastest thing you get and then i drove a plaid and i went oh my god the, the new plaid is just it's just crazy. You realize, okay, this is the future. I mean, I've got a four-door sedan that's faster than a Bugatti Chiron. And it doesn't make any sense, but it's ridiculous, you know? I, but it shows you the real reason. I bought the car because it's the fast. I bought my 88 Turbo Bentley back in 1989. It was an 89, rather, I bought an 88 because it was the fastest four-door sedan you could get in America, the Bentley Turbo R. Uh, and then this is sort of the same deal. And for less money than that was back in 19, uh, 1989, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. When you look at what Tesla has done with these uh, carbon rotor motors, I mean, they've invented a, a new type of, of electric motor. You know, it's so funny. They, with electric motors, it, it, I feel like my mom walking in the garage when the guys are talking about cam timing because, you know, you, I, I was at the drag show with Tesla guys and the engineers. Are, That's how it's so magnets. I'm going, can I get you guys a drink? Because I can't even enter the conversation here because all my knowledge is useless. It's like I'm the best horseshoer in the country, but nobody has horseshoes anymore. Okay, and, and that's that's where it is, you know. So it, it's fascinating to be at, in, on the cusp of this sort of changeover. And I think in the next six years, it's just going to be unbelievable. Well, I actually had a, one of those Turbo R's and, and uh, 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 you'll go broke replacing the mineral oil, which is about $80 a quart and the brake accumulators. But time will tell if, if Tesla batteries are more or less reliable than 80s Bentleys. Uh, we'll see. Well, I think, I think they are. You know, my... Uh, P90 has lost maybe 2%. I mean, I, I charge mine the right way. I charge it to every day to about 80%, 85%. Uh, for this sale, I charge it up to 100%, and it went to uh, 268 which is exactly what it did when I got it. So if you maintain it and take care of it properly, I've only used a supercharger once. Uh, you don't want to do that too much. I think that can damage the batteries. But if you're careful with it, and I drive it hard. I mean, I've been through three sets of tires and 23,000 miles. So I drive it hard. But uh, battery wear doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, so that that's good. That's good. Yeah. So just to give a little color to people who are listening, like Jay has a, a blue Tesla Model S, which was the top of the line, uh, 90 uh, D, I think, model right. uh, in 2015, and you replaced it with, I think, almost the same color of the brand new 2021 model, right. uh, and then the old one we're selling on BAT right now, and that's actually probably going to close 
uh, in the next whatever it is, another day before yeah. before this goes up. So you're going to get to experience the final minutes of a BAT uh, auction for the first time, which is a sort of a <laughs> interesting experience. But you touched on something that I think is interesting. You said you never sell a car. This is your first car you've sold in 30 something years. Like, right. why, why is that? What is it about you? Are you just way better at buying than selling or you don't want well, the hassle or what's the deal? Well, the interesting thing is I'm not as emotionally attached to my P90 because it doesn't need me. It never needed me. It doesn't break. It doesn't. You know, when you take a car apart and you put it together, it's like a bond that you do have with it. You know, whether it's my Hudson Hornet or whatever, uh, you just feel, you know, when a car breaks down and you're able to get it home yourself, ah, this is pretty good. You feel like you've, done so you know we love it you see i am in show business which is subjective some people think you're funny some people think you suck i mean there's not much you can do about it you, you can't make somebody laugh if they don't think it's funny that's fine but when something's broken and you fix it nobody can say it's not fixed an engine wasn't running now it is oh okay there's a great deal of satisfaction in that i mean i can write a joke and tell it and somebody laughs and somebody doesn't so we go, i love that joke someone goes I didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, I, and they're both right, you know, but when you, you, you take something and get it to operate the way it's supposed to, oh, there's a great deal of satisfaction in that. So, so yeah, like I, I have no compulsion selling my P90 because it's exactly as it was when I bought it, except it has 23,000 miles on it. Makes sense. Makes sense. And so when you tend to buy things a lot more than you sell them, you tend to accumulate a few things. And I think a lot of people know you as, you know, Jay on The Tonight Show and Jay right. knows Garage and these sort of things. And, and people in the car world know that you're a diehard car guy. And then you have this, you know, garage uh, full of cars. And so I'd, I'd love to delve into, I think what people don't and know. Motorcycle. Yeah. And motorcycles, right. And yeah. like, why why do you have all these? What, what on earth are you doing with them? Is your plan to let that grow and grow and grow? Or have you reached this sort of wonderful equilibrium? Or like, what what is behind all of that stuff? I had no idea my mom would be interviewing me. Why do you have all these cars? I didn't know why you <laughs> have them all. I, I thought this was a car site, but okay. I thought the... I, I thought well, the 350 or what, what's the number up to, man? I mean, how many are we talking? Well, there's 200 cars registered and 168 motorcycles. Okay, so we'll call it in the 300. So I'm not trying to mom you here, but I mean, that is a little outside the norm, right? Can we well, can I get that at least? Well, let me ask, let me ask. Well, you know something? My wife loves this show, Hoarders, and I watch it and I go, the guy seems fine, honey. I mean, there's still, look, there's still a passageway to get from the bedroom into the living room. It's not like there's not a little, a, a little alleyway through there. You can get around the magazines. I don't, I think this guy is fine. What, what, what's wrong with this show? So, so to, to, to me, the show, the show makes perfect sense. Well, you know, I just collect cars instead of old newspapers, but yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's funny when you're interested in something, you always want to know what came before that. And uh, like if you like muscle cars, you get a few muscle cars and you go, what came before the muscle car? Well, what came before the muscle cars were big cars with muscle, like the Chryslers, the Chrysler Hemis from the 50s. The beginning. And what came before that? Oh, the, oh, the Buick valve and head. What came before that? Well, then steam engine. So you just want to, you know, the fun thing about this hobby is, if we were Egyptologists, our, our hobby would be 5,000 years old. But, our, but the whole history of the car world 
doesn't go back much more than maybe 150 years and that's stretching it. So you can encompass almost all of it. So I, I, I find that fascinating. Well, that's, uh, you know, my dad had a saying, which is, which was, we're all just one car away from true happiness. And, and you seem to, to embody that quite a bit. Um, you just touched on something I really wanted to ask you about as it relates to uh, pre-war cars. I mean, you know, Jay, I, I don't think there's too many people out there that have both a Hispano Suiza and a McLaren F1. Um, right. That's probably a, a rarefied group. Um, but you've got some really neat pre-war stuff. I mean, Bentleys and Duesenbergs and, and your right. collection. Uh, are, are the great pre-wars kind of what, what really captured your attention when, when you started collecting or um, the, the point you just made about always wondering what came before? Uh, I think our, our audience would, would love to know about kind of where your interest in rooted, is rooted and, and where it all started. Well, I always liked technology that was ahead of its time. In its time, I like noble failures. I like people that uh, built things that were really much better than anybody needed. So consequently, nobody could afford it. Nobody bought it. I mean, the Duesenberg would be a good example of that. The Duesenberg was a seven liter twin cam, four valve engine in 1928. I mean, the speed limit was still 45 miles an hour. A uh, hundred miles an hour then was like 200 miles an hour now. I mean, a, a, a Model T Ford had a top speed of maybe 44 miles an hour if you were really pushing it, and you couldn't hold that for very long. So the idea that anybody needed something that was over the top, that's what I like about Elon with the Plaid. It's a ridiculous car that is so fast, but yet there's a need it's, you know, to keep pushing the envelope. Uh, you know, Duesenberg went out of business because basically the cars were too good. Uh, it was way more car than anybody you needed. Know, Four-wheel hydraulic brakes before anybody else. And uh, you know, like I said, four valves, twin cam. I mean, to set the valves on a Duesenberg is a 40-hour job. It's a full week of eight hours a day with shims and buckets and doing that whole thing. Uh, you know, it's crazy. Uh, but back then, technology was expensive and labor was cheap. So you could build these labor intensive vehicles and pay a guy 50 cents a day and, you know, and, and, and then you were fine. So I, I enjoy, you know, it's so funny when you read about supercars back in the thirties, if you drove when you'd be disappointed because cars today are so superior in terms of, I'll give you a perfect example. Tim Allen and I, we found um, for my show, we found a 67 GP GTO tri-power, with automatic, but all the performance options. And I said, let's race it against just a regular mom car. So we found a Nissan Altima uh, V6 automatic <laughs> and the Altima blew the doors off the GTO. I mean, it was, I mean, the GTO sounded good and made all the right noises and ate gas and did all those things, but it still got its doors blown off by the Altima. So you realize how far car technology, what's, what used to be fast. When I was a kid, uh, 1966, the Hemi Coronet came out and that did zero to 60 in 6.3 seconds. And people thought, well, it's gotta be a typo. It can't be that fast. That's crazy. Nothing. Well, the new Tesla plant goes zero to 60 in just a hair under two seconds. So it, it's just amazing how fast it goes. So I, I forgot the original question. What was your, I probably got off topic here. What was the original question? No, no, you, 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 you've answered it perfectly. This was, okay. uh, this is what this is all about. Yeah. Okay. 
So jumping from there, I mean, you talk about technology in the cars and setting valves on the Duesenbergs and stuff. I was talking to Howard before we got you in and I was kind of talking about there's the parking area of your garage and then there's the workshop. And then obviously you get your cars out some. And I want to talk about the workshop because you guys are doing some interesting things, but your ideal part and taking part in, in a, the car hobby today is what? Is yourself out on PCH with nobody bothering you? Or it's all your buddies, you know, trying to figure out the valves on a on a pre-war car or it's, you know, driving them that are over in the garage side? What's, what's sort of the ideal day for you? Well, luckily we don't live in communist China, so I don't have to pick just one. I can have all of those things. And that's really what it is. I mean, the fun part is uh, sharing the stuff. You know, I drove one of these BAC monos. You ever seen that thing? Yeah. And I didn't like it because it was one seat. And I thought to me, half the fun of having this stuff is sharing the experience. You know, that's really the whole thing. I mean, every now and then I'll get a letter from an old guy like me uh, who read about Duesenbergs and I it, oh, it never even saw one. So I invite him to the garage and I take him for a ride. And I just enjoy seeing their reaction to, oh, what it's like to experience it. You know, uh, the fun thing about having this Tesla plant is you can put three people in it and blow off a 911 <laughs> like it's nothing. And people are stunned. So, I mean, yeah, it's really all of that. It's really the shared experience. It's the idea of fixing something and then taking it out and road testing it. I mean, to me, the car I love driving the most is the last one we just worked on. Uh, I mean, I've got a project ahead of me right now. We just blew up the engine in the Chrysler turbine car. It was, yeah, it, uh, there's only two of these in private hands. There are no parts. There's nothing. So we've got to just struggle to figure out how to make these pieces using 3d printing and whatnot um and figure out what the alloy is in the motor and uh it, yeah it's it's pretty uh it, it's it's going to be a pretty intense project but uh when i got the chrysler turbine car all i did was just drive it it didn't need much and what happened was it's got a thing called regenerators in it which circulate the heat well, the regenerator kind of locked up and then the heat just burned through the regenerator, literally melted the inside. And you're looking at 3000 degrees here. And uh, yeah, so we opened it up. But the fun part is taking it apart and opening it up. You know, I always believe the heart is healthiest when the head and the hands work together, you know. So during the day, I like to work with my hands. And at night I go out and I tell jokes and do stuff like that. And it's fun. It makes you appreciate hard, hard work. I have so many friends in show business that go, they want me to go there for 10 grand. I'm like, what else are you doing on a Tuesday that's worth 10 grand? Just shut up. Just go do it. Because, you know, when you take your transmission out and your hands are all bloody and covered with grease, and you realize some guy probably just made 80 bucks for the day doing that, it, it makes you appreciate the, your life a little bit more in your job, if that makes any sense. That makes a ton of sense. When I was at your garage, you were trying to pull out your Mercedes uh, sedan, your 6.3 sedan, and you were having trouble with it. So you ended up up to your elbows underneath that car, yanking on things up underneath the engine compartment. And uh, it looked like you were actually genuinely enjoying fighting that car and trying to get it to, to drive you home. Well, I think there's a great deal of satisfaction getting something to operate properly. I mean, life for most people is pretty frustrating. How many things in your life can you actually control? You know, you have a trouble with the, the tax franchise board or whatever it might be. There's, there's really nothing you can do here. 
but you could take something that's broken, work on it, get it to go. I mean, that 6.3 that you're talking about, that car has 326,000 miles on it. And I change the oil and I replace parts when necessary. And it'll last the rest of my life. I mean, a, a car can last your whole life if you take care of it, take care of it and maintain it. That's what's kind of fun about that thing. Uh, yeah, extremely complex. Well, it's, it's so funny because when I was a kid, I had a 34 Ford with a V8. And a friend of mine came over, this is in the 60s, with a new Mustang. We opened the hood of that Mustang and I went, oh my God. I can't imagine working on this thing. It looks so complicated. Well, now when I open the hood of six five Mustang, it couldn't be simpler. I go, oh my God, this is nothing. And then I, uh, I don't even talk about fixing the test, please. I couldn't tell you what to do there without getting electrocuted. So um, yeah, there's a great deal of, uh, of fun. I just putting it all in perspective. You know, Jay, uh, last week we were talking to the head of the RPM Foundation talking about you know, the future of, of uh, classic car restoration and, and finding, uh, you know, young people to replace kind of the, the aging old guard of, uh, of all the people who are working on this stuff. Um, how do you think about an approach keeping your collection going? I mean, obviously you need to drive oh. cars to, to keep them, uh, you know, fr from decaying, but, but we'd love to hear about uh, uh, your whole uh, well, uh, maintenance. Well, yeah, there's a college in Kansas, it's called McPherson College. And they have a degree in automobile restoration. I've set up a couple of scholarships there. One under Fred Duesenberg's name, I think one or two under my name, where kids get a, you know, this is the only country in the world where to be a mechanic, you just say, I'm a mechanic and people believe you. You can't say I'm a doctor and people believe you. But for some reason, they do that with it. I mean, there's a shop here in Burbank that has my favorite sign. It says, we specialize in all makes of cars. They specialize in everything. <laughs> Their specialty is everything, which just makes me laugh. I just, you know, and, and, and so to me, like McPherson College, when you graduate from there, uh, we've had graduates go to the Mercedes-Benz Center, the Classic Center in Germany, Jaguar Classic, GM Heritage. Uh, you know, automobiles now, this is a great time. You actually have more and more. You know, when I was a kid, you went to a car show and a guy would show up at a Duesenberg with three black wall tires and one white wall truck tire and win the show because he was the only one that even had tires that could get to the show because there was nothing available. You just had to find old tires in a junkyard and put them on your car and hope they didn't disintegrate. Now everything's available. You know, it's uh, cars are finally being seen as kinetic artwork, as rolling sculpture. And, you know, you see them in museums now. I mean, guys that go to work for the Classic Center, they make a hundred bucks an hour, you know, because they're specialists. They have a four-year degree. You know, your parents don't have to break down in tears anymore when you say you want to be a mechanic. I mean, I got a friend of mine that runs a transmission shop and that's all he does. And he must make 250, 300,000 a year. He's got like 30 people working for him because for some reason we live in this world now where pressing a keyboard and getting carpal tunnel syndrome somehow seems preferable to actually working with your hands and making something. And it's rather discouraging, but I'm not discouraged at all. You know, I find when I was a kid, a lot of guys would fake interest in cars because it was a way to meet girls because cars were part of the culture. Songs like 409, Little GTO and all that. So they didn't know anything about cars, but they pretended. These days I find kids either know nothing about cars 
oh, they are just unbelievable experts. Uh, I mean, I meet young people now that, that can just know everything. And this is, we live in an age of specialization. People like focus on one thing. And uh, we have, for example, there are mechanics now that only do Ford GTs. A guy named Tony works for Ford. He travels the country and just fixes every Ford GT. Porsche Carrera, I've got a Porsche Carrera GT. Uh, there's 1,260 of them built, I think, out of 1,500 that's supposed to be built. And there's a couple of guys, and that's it. They're, they're like heart surgeons. They go around the country and they know these cars inside and out. So I think the health of the hobby is very good and will continue to do well, you know, because these cars still bring huge money. Um, the recent auction results, well, you guys can speak to this. It's crazy. I mean, cars are going for, uh, especially cars, the classics have fallen somewhat in the cars from the 50s, but that's, that's fine. You know, it's a bit like music. There's rock and roll and there's rap. You can like one and hate the other, but it's all still music. So I'm I'm very hopeful. I think with colleges like McPherson and you know, you're getting specialists that can do these cars and fix parts and 3D printing. Okay, I mean when I first got into steam cars, they're wonder parts. You would buy cars. There were remnants of cars and just hope you found parts one day. Now you can replicate every single part. And it's, it's really amazing. You can't tell them from the originals. I saw that big 3D printer when we were in your, in your garage and it seemed like sort of a staple. It was right there in the middle of everything that you, uh, that you had going on. And it seemed like maybe that was going to be a new area of focus or maybe you were experimenting with it. But it's, No, it's, that, that's, that thing is, uh, you know, for example, I have this Merlin-powered 34 rolls with 27-liter Merlin aircraft engine in it. We wanted to run it on Weber carburetors. So we 3D printed our own intake manifold. And now it's running on Weber. There are, there's no Weber intake manifold for a 27 liter Merlin V8. But now there is. We made one. And if anybody wanted one, I would certainly share the dimensions with them. And they could, uh, they could print up their own. Uh, we could make parts for steam cars. You can make similar. You can make anything. And it's, it's really good. There's no reason to throw out any part anymore, no matter how worn out. I mean, uh, there's a company up here in Temecula called Lock and Stitch. Uh, and I, we had a 1913 Christie fire engine, which was a front-wheel drive, four-cylinder fire engine. And the rod came through the side of the block. And the hole was big enough for me to actually stick my head in. It was that big. I mean, the size of a football helmet. We sent it to them and they stitched it back together, not using heat or nothing that caused distortion. So the technology now is amazing to resurrect and fix just about anything. And when you look at that block, you cannot even see where the rod came through. Yet we managed to save the original block with the original numbers. It's still the original block. It's just been repaired instead of thrown out. So the future actually looks very bright for the antique car hobby because finally restores are being treated with respect. Uh, they're not just grease monkeys or mechanics, you know? I mean, when I was a kid, my dad were these old car nuts. He would call them nuts because why would you pay more for an old car when 
you could, my dad would, you could buy a new Cadillac for that. Why would you buy a 32 Ford? You got a brand new Cadillac. It didn't make any sense to him because he was born in 1910, you know, but to me, I totally get it. So I think even from an investment point of view, old cars make sense. Uh, McLaren F1 is a classic example. I bought that back in 98 or 99. It was $800,000. People, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. That's stupid. I thought, well, I like it. I'm doing good. I can, I'm going to buy it. No, you're going to lose your shirt. That's the most idiot. Well, the last offer I got was $17,500,000 and one sold for $24 million at Monterey. So, yeah, I mean, the, the trick is if you're reasonably knowledgeable and you like it, other reasonably knowledgeable people will like it, too. And most likely will go up in value, especially stuff they're not making anymore. I don't get paying big money for a brand new uh, car still in production, like a C8 or a Viper at the time, because they'll make as many as they need to sell. But in McLaren's case, there were 64 road cars. That's all they built. They're not going to build anymore. So if you want one, the price is just going to keep going up. I had a friend of mine when I bought mine, he bought one, too. And two years later, he got offered a million three. And he thought, well, that's crazy. I, I got to sell it. I don't want to sell it, but I got to sell it. Well, now he's kicking himself because one went for $24 million, which is ridiculous. No, it, um, go ahead, Howard. It's like the old saying, new, new cars are for people who can't afford old, old cars, right? But I, I just want to go back real quick to the, to the 3D printing because uh, uh, I think people would be curious. Uh, I mean, you said you, you use that printer to to produce this highly specialized pre-war intake manifold and just bam, it, it prints it and it, you, you bolt it on and it works? Or is there more refinement needed or how, how plug and play does that process actually uh, come out? To well, be? I mean, it, there's a little bit of work involved. You, it'll build exactly what you input. So make sure your inputs are correct. Um, we have a thing called the ferrule arm, which, which, which scans it in a 3D way and gives you all the proper measurements and you make it about 1% bigger to allow for shrinkage. They have 3D printers that print in metal now. Mine still prints in plastic. And then we use that as the, as the mold and we send that out and have it, and have it, uh, and have it made. Uh, but yeah, there's no part you, you, can't, you can't make. I mean, it's amazing. It, you know, you can put in uh, a complex part like, uh, the back back of a clock. It'll make all the pieces without even disassembling the clock, and it will work. I mean, it's fascinating. We've made everything. We've made water pumps. You know, I bought a car, a 1914 Premier, from a guy who bought the car in the late 70s, and it needed a water pump, and he thought, well, he'd find one. Well, he had it for 30 years and he never found a water pump. So, so I bought it from pretty cheap. We bought it back here. We took the old water pump. We scanned it. Uh, places where there was porosity, we put in extra, we built it up with extra metal uh, on the 3D printing process. Took the water pump, had it made, and it's on the car now and it runs fine. And, and it looks like the original water pump, it even has the original numbers that the original water pump had. The original water pump was all corroded and eaten away and had porosity problems, but we're able to scan it and make it bigger, stronger than it was. That's amazing. I get angry if I can't find a water pump in three weeks, like I was looking for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of those things, they go, I'll find one. Well, there weren't any because see, it's different. It's not like the old days. What they do now is, 
when they get V8 engines, junkyards, I believe, are required to, to, to crush them or put a hole in the block to make them useless so they can't be used again, you know. So, but if you can find one, you know, they used to be, you go to a junkyard now and there's really anything past 2013. It's all modern stuff. Everything else has been crushed and sold for scrap, you know. So this, this is why 3D printing will, will save the day. Yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to hear a little bit about your sort of inspiration in this world or any, any heroes or, or people that you admire that are doing things uh, in, the, in the car world. I may not let you say Elon, you've given him the 1.9, uh, 0 to 60, but anybody else that's being uh, innovative in the classic car world or the new car world that you really uh, sort of look up to and, and think are doing it right? Yeah, there's an awful lot of people out there. I, I, you know, I am not an engineer or anything like that. I'm not even a very good mechanic. I just enjoy working on the stuff and I like it. Uh, so I'm enamored of anybody. You know, I hate these car shows where they try to trash a car or break a car, you know. Um, it, it's really hard to do to produce an automobile. The, I mean, the average car has, what, 10,000 parts? So assuming you're not making each one yourself, you're relying on all these different suppliers and uh, I mean, it's a, it's a tough business. I mean, you're only as good as your last model. So whenever I get something, I mean, I'm amazed at what General Motors has been able to do, how they can produce a C8 Corvette for $62,000. I mean, it would cost you 20000 to paint it. I mean, so it's pretty amazing. Uh, uh, you know, Taj Jukner is the uh, chief engineer for... Uh, Corvette. I had a funny experience with him. We went to Milford Proving Ground and I thought, oh, let's go 200 miles an hour in a Corvette. This is in 2019. It was the last ZR1. So we pulled one off the line and I called Taz. Do you want to ride with us? Said, yeah, okay. So we get there and get the brand new Corvette and he, he gets in the driver's seat. I said, you ready to go? I said, okay. So I said, uh, tell me about the first time you went 200 miles an hour in a Corvette. He goes, oh, I never have. I said, you never have. So your first time going 200 miles an hour in a Corvette is with a comedian who's never been on the track before, who's 70 years old. Is that what you're telling me? He goes, yeah. I said, well, all right, <laughs> let's do it. And we did about 50 laps at 204 miles an hour. And here's the amazing part. Uh, in Back in 2005, I went to Talladega with our Courier GT. And we did, uh, I don't know if it was quite 100 laps, but it's close to that at 190 miles an hour. You just wanted to see how many laps you could do at 190 miles an hour. And at 190, boy, that Porsche career, and that was set up by Norbert Singer. It was, it was walking around, you know, it was at 190, I, I go into the, the banking, and I'd feel the tires. I mean, I could feel myself just inching, inching. I said, boy, this is scary as crap. This is unbelievable. So just, you know, you know, 190, Okay. And then as I'm coming down the back straight, the guy gives me the thumbs up and then the, you know, the, the slash across the neck, like you can cut it. I said, oh, okay. And I lifted off the throttle and boom, the back end came around and did about eight spins, rolled down the center of the track 
I mean, luckily I was able to avoid hitting the wall because that old adage, you know, you'll always hit where you're looking at. So every time I saw the wall, I cut the wheel. And every time the wall came up, I kept cutting the wheel. So I managed to stay in the center track and just flat spot all the tires without damaging the car. Yet, 15 years later in the Corvette, for a tenth of the price of that uh, Cura GT, we were able to do 204 miles an hour for 50 laps. Rock steady. I mean, the aerodynamics, the suspension, everything is that much improved in just a decade and a half. And I, I thought that was pretty amazing technology. So the fact that we're able to make these cars, you know, when I look at the C8, I figured, oh, it would have just a torque, uh, you know, torque converter transmission. No, it has a dual clutch, done magnesium, aluminum frame. I mean, all the trick stuff that you find in McLarens and Ferraris. I know there's more trick stuff in those, but I mean, they're three to four times the price of the Corvette. So the fact that American manufacturing is able to do it for that amount of money, I find quite impressive. That is so great. So when you got behind the, the wheel of the VED at Milford, did you look over to the guy and tell him, hey, the last time I did this, I, I was pirouetting through the infield at 190 miles an hour? <laughs> no, I, I didn't mention that, but uh, no, I didn't, it didn't seem like a smart thing to bring up at the time. <laughs> um, I love talking about sort of unsung models, as you know, on BAT, like we love featuring weird stuff, not necessarily expensive stuff, just right. like unusual enthusiast stuff. We were talking... We had Bob Lutz on the podcast, who I know you probably know is an interesting character. And he went long, started talking about Opal GTs, which I just think is so poetic that a big executive will sit and talk to us for seemingly uh, seemingly a full hour on his experience with a you know $3,000 car or whatever it is. Yeah, well, the Opal GT was a pretty good car. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Uh, uh, Lutz is the guy you know who came up with the slogan, the ultimate driving machine for BMW. W. Uh, I mean, he knows his stuff. He's, you know, he's a real car guy. And, uh, and because, as you know, just a really funny character. You know, before I got my Chrysler Turbine car, a friend of mine named Frank Lutz, he, he owned the one from Harris, but the engine was not operable. And I called up Bob Lutz and I said, hey, Bob, a friend of mine's got a turbine car. He doesn't have an engine. You got any spare turbine engines left over? And he goes, let me check. And he called me. He goes, yeah, there's one here. I said, okay, how much you want for it? I'll send it to you. Oh, oh, thanks. So he sent it to me, and then I gave it to, to Frank. And, you know, and he put it in the car. That was before I had mine. I sort of saved it for myself. But, yeah, that's the kind of guy he is. Real car guy, very nice guy, very funny. Yeah, the parallel there, I was just going to ask you. Like, I know there's cars that people associate with you all the time, either through your videos or, or whatever reason, right? Whether it's the Red Gold Wing or the, the Shogun or the... Mazda Cosmo, you know, the ones that a lot of people have seen you and seen you publicly with, but are there any sort of unsung or, or uh, sort of dark horse models that people wouldn't have thought are, you know, favorite of favorite of Jay Leno that, uh, that well, I love, I love, I've got a, about three Panards, uh, which is the Panard is a French car yep. that was actually better than the Volkswagen. It's just the French, they don't, you want to buy one? Buy one. We don't care. You know, it's, it's that attitude. They didn't know how to market it. I mean, the Panard is an air-cooled twin cylinder, 850cc. It's got um, torsion bar valve springs. It's twice the power of a Volkswagen with half the number of cylinders and half the displacement. Well, a little more than half the displacement. And 
better car than the Volkswagen, smoother, faster. It's just, you know, to the French, if you own the Shell station, you want to be a dealer. Yeah, sure, you can be a dealer. You know, it wasn't set up. To, you know, the Germans have that precision thing going. Uh, but the Panard is a fascinating car. Just the way you literally unbolt the engine, lift it out of the front, and then put on your workbench and work on it. I mean, the the uh, uh, exhaust pipes are the motor mounts. The exhaust pipes, you tighten it in the way you would know an exhaust pipe. And then they connect to a rubber piece which is this which i mean it's it's it you know the french thing completely different everybody around them builds cars traditionally and i think it has to do with the fact that french cars always seem to be built in paris you know something about romanticism and intellectualism and all that kind of stuff and the french just do everything different i mean the english the spanish the germans they all do five millimeter uh I mean, they do like six millimeter, eight millimeter, 10 millimeter. The French do five millimeter, seven millimeter. Like on a French car, you pull the light switches out to turn them off. So the number of dead batteries I've had from driving these things. So I put, I go, oh, it, or people walk by and go, oh, your lights are on. I saw the switch, I pushed it in. No, you just turned it on. Now, you know, I mean, everything is different. They're just, they're just so odd. Just the French think so differently, but they don't really care about performance times. It's all about luxury and comfort. I mean, I've got a Citroen DS and a Citroen SM. They are the most comfortable driving cars. I mean, they're just unbelievable. I don't know why Rolls-Royce does not have Citroen seats in them because people sit in that car and they go, oh my God, this is so comfortable. I can't believe this. I go, well, yeah, that's, you need to experience it. You know, I mean, that's what my garage is all about. Just getting unusual driving experiences. Because everything now is the same. You know, when I was a kid, it was fun. You had everything from push button transmissions to weird, uh, like, uh, like on the Hudson, it's on the column. And to start the car, you pull the uh, shift lever towards you. It's like nobody can steal this car because you can't figure out how to start it. You get in, you pull it towards you, and then it's, oh, then, oh, then, oh, that's how he starts this thing. You know, so I just like anything that's different or unusual than the norm. You know, we had uh, we had Graham Rahal on the podcast a few few months back. Uh, he was telling us about uh, how David Letterman is a partner in his IndyCar team. David, right. car enthusiast. You had mentioned your buddy Tim Allen. Uh, you know, Seinfeld, obviously well known in, in the Porsche world. Um, I think of like back in the day, Gary Cooper driving around in his SSJ Duesenberg. Uh, so, what is it about car culture and show business that that goes so well together? Is that an LA culture thing, or, or what do you make of it? Well, I think if you're in show business, you're probably a bit of an extrovert, you know. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, I worked at a place called Foreign Motors in Boston. We sold foreign cars, Rolls-Royce, Mercedes-Benz, Bentley, Peugeot, everything. One day, we got a red Corniche convertible in, and it sat in the showroom for almost 18 months. Just couldn't give it away. The boss said, send it to L.A., and it sold in two weeks. Because the idea of driving a red Rolls Royce in Boston was like, oh, it, you know, Boston was so much, especially then old money instead of new money. So the idea of driving a red Rolls Royce convertible, oh, that's preposterous. You know? But in LA, oh my God, a red Rolls Royce. Yeah, it sold in two weeks, which, which, which really made me laugh. And that sort of explains it. You know, Duesenbergs were not quiet like Packard's or even Pierce Arrow's. 
they were loud and fast and a bit raucous. So anybody that was a bit of an extrovert or in show business or, you know, a lot of times when you see stars standing next to Duesenberg's, people think Jimmy Cagney on one. He didn't. But they would let a star borrow a car for the week if they could take their picture next to it. You know, the same thing they do nowadays. So that's why you see a lot of stars with cars that they never really own. The, uh, the, we were talking French cars. I got to bring a French car on your show and we drove it around a little bit. That was a, definitely a super highlight for me, bringing the Renault down there and, and uh, figuring out how not to leave the lights on. But uh, tell us about your show. I mean, are you going to, you have the next like 500 cars lined up for these drive arounds you're going to do on Jay Leno's garage and recording these things? Or is this, uh, is that going to be, you know, what's, what's the plan? Well, what I do is just something called street grab. I'm driving around and I see an interesting car and people go, oh, Jay Leno. So they kind of recognize me from being on TV. I go, hey, I love this. You want to put it on the show? And they go, sure. And so they come, I did that the other day. A guy had a 240Z. It, I think it's on the website right now. And uh, he cut the roof off it and, and made it convertible and put a 350 Chevy in it and all this kind of stuff. But it looked great. It, 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 it had a nice stance. It seemed to handle and drive well. And, and that's sort of the fun part. You know, it's funny. I mean, the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris, those do well. But the ones that really get the big viewing numbers are the, you know, the, B210 dots in the guy modified or, you know, just regular cars that regular people have. And uh, it, it's fun. I, it, you know, my attitude is anything that rolls, explodes and makes noise is, is fun. And, and that's what we look for. Just any kind of interesting, interesting cars. You know, a lot. Of, I mean, I buy the story as much as I buy the car. I mean, that's what makes it, you know, my, my favorite one was, you know, I have a, a uh, 53 Hudson Hornet and a nice original car. And we, well, not all original, we restored it, but uh, I mean, original specs and great driving car. And this old lady calls me one day and she's 94 years old. And she's telling me the story her and her husband bought this brand new 51 Hudson Hornet, in New Jersey, and they moved to California with their kids. And he came here to open a gas station. That's when, you know, you could, uh, you know, lead a normal life in California for a reasonable amount of money. And they drove across country and it's the only car they had. He died in 96. This is back in the early 2000s. And the car's sitting in the garage, but I buy it. And I said, well, I got a 53 Hudson. Oh, we we'll just come look at it. Oh, okay. So I got to see her and she's 94, no hearing aid, no glasses. And she takes me in the garage and things sitting there with four flat tires. She's got one of those California dusters, you know. She go, would, would you buy it? I wanted to go to a good home. I said, well, I don't really need it. Uh, all right, okay. All right, I'll buy it. So I gave her 5000 for the car, which I thought was a little more than it was worth. But that's okay. So I get it home here at the garage, and we start restoring it. It took about two years to paint it. you know. So I say, gosh, she's 94. I wonder if she's still alive. So when the car is finished, I call her up, and I go, hello. And she goes, hello. I, oh, this is Jay Leno. Oh, Jay. I said, listen, uh, cars all restored. You want to come for a ride? Oh, well, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I got to get my hair done. I got, we have to get, no, no, I got to get my hair done. And she said, can I bring my kids? Can the kids come? I said, yeah, sure. Well, the kids were 72 and 74. Okay. <laughs> she, now she's 96. <laughs> so, so I drive out there and the kids have got a blindfold on her. And she stands in the driveway when I pull in, you know. 
and she's touching the car and going around. Oh, it feels oh, the paint feels so shiny. And I, I said, well, take the blindfold off. And she sees it. It's all you know restored and the chrome's been redone. Oh, and she just starts crying. So I, I said, you want to go for a ride? She said, let's go for a ride. I put the kids in the back. So the two kids get in the back, seventy-two and the same four-year-old. So her and I are talking, and she's telling me stories about Route sixty-six and the big TP and all this kind of stuff. And as we're as we're talking, the two kids in the back start poking each other, you know, like just playing, poking each other. And she turns around and it's just just slapping the crap out of him. She goes, I told you kids that Mr. Leno was taking us right you behavior. And she just she's whacking him as hard as she can. I can hear the slaps and the and the three of them are just dying laughing over there. I told you kids you behave this is Mr. Leno's car and you know, I can't take you kids anywhere. And she's just yelling at you know, and they're just having the time to laugh, you know, and it was just great. Yeah. She finally passed away, I think, at 104 or something like that. But it was just a great memory, you know. So that's it, it, that's what makes the car fun when you have those kind of stories. You know, it was the only car they had. And the two kids told me that when they were in high school, they were so ashamed their dad was driving this 1951 car in the 60s that he would, they would drop the kids off like three blocks from school and the kids would walk the rest of the way. So the other kids wouldn't see their dad was driving this old car, you know. Uh, it just those kind, of, and and to me, that's what makes it fun. You know, it really makes it a, a fun car to have, and it's a fun story to tell. That's wow. a great story. I love it. I love all of that. One one your uh, your street grabs. I'm just picturing you cruising around, you know, Burbank and Riverside, looking for cars you want to put on the show, and and then also apparently you're uh, taking cold calls from 98 year old, 94 year old ladies trying to sell you their 51 Hudson. So that's uh, that's pretty neat, Jay. Oh, yeah. You meet, I meet a lot of people like, you know, something there are a lot of guys like me that don't have kids and they want their car to go to a good home and they want it to somebody's, you know, no, nobody wants to sell something and then see it two weeks later for three times the money at an auction and realize, oh, they got taken, you know. So what I do is I always put the owner's picture up wherever the car is parked in the garage. And, you know, a lot of times people call and the grandkids come to see grandpa's old car and I've got a bunch of cars like that. So that's kind of fun. That's kind of fun. I think it's great. Well, we hope we uh, are contributing positively to that. You know, in BAT, we like the story as well. And we try to include as many stories as possible and as much depth as we can on listing uh, so many cars. Even well, that, that's, what make, that's what makes it fun. That's why I bought my Falcon uh, off of BAT, because it was just, you know, it's an, it's an enthusiast site. So the cars are owned by enthusiasts. There's nobody you know, selling a picture of a car saying, never seen snow, and it's caused the middle of a snowstorm and the picture is taken. You know, people just lie blatantly to your face, you know. Uh, no rust, and then you see just a huge, you know, and the fact that the cars are well-documented. So I, I bought a couple of cars, and I've never had any any problem at all, actually, with it. It's, it's, uh, it, it's been good, because it, I think it's like-minded people. Like on my Tesla, um, I replaced everything that was scratched or pieces of trim because i just wanted to be perfect because it's going on bat and i think you guys have a certain reputation that way so yep absolutely well you contribute to that and people love seeing you around and are excited to see the tesla um and so we just want to thank you for that involvement over the years but also for giving us an hour of your time right now this was super fun to talk to you and uh, we appreciate well, thank it you. And, thanks uh, thank you guys 
hope we can uh, do it some more in the future. So we'll uh, we'll sign off here for the BAT podcast. Another fun episode that we thank Jay. Uh, Howard, good to be with you as always. And uh, we'll do it again next time. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.